Heavenly Father, we seek your intercession on this meeting. Draw us into the identity of your Son, Jesus Christ. Let us grow deeper in understanding how a priest becomes that person of Christ. Give us the grace and the joy to live out this life as a Dawson priest, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Welcome back to Theology at the Eucharistic Table podcast. This is one of your hosts, Nelson Sintra. Today we have a bonus episode for you. Abba Jeremy is going to talk with three of our seminarians. Two of them will soon be ordained to the priesthood and one to the diaconate. The three seminarians are studying for the Diocese of Boise, Idaho, and there are two reasons why we decided to do this bonus episode. One is because with ordinations around the corner, there's a fitting time to talk about the priesthood and the ordinational ritual, and to bring in men who will soon be ordained. And secondly, because Abba Jeremy himself is from Idaho. So they talk about their childhood, they talk about their upbringing, and finally they go on to talk about the ritual itself, the theology behind it, and wisdom and advice and encouragement for the men going into the priesthood and the diaconate. We do spend quite a while, about 20 minutes, talking about their background and their their journey towards ordination. So if that doesn't interest you, you can skip ahead to around minute 24 when we turn our focus to Abba Jeremy's expounding on the ritual and on his wisdom. Without further ado, we bring you Abba Jeremy Driscoll, Deacon Nathan Dale, Deacon Joseph Lustig, and John Mosier. Deacon Joseph, could you just say a little bit about where you're from and how long you've been here? Yeah, I'm Deacon Joseph Lustig, and I am from Idaho, from the north central region on the Camas Prairie. Cottonwood, Idaho is my town. Uh, That's where I grew up. That's where I lived with my family in that very German Catholic area, a bunch of farmers. And now I'm just finishing my last year at Mount Angel Seminary in formation and will be ordained soon for Idaho. And we have Deacon Nathan Dale. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, my name is Deacon Nathan Dale, transitional Deacon Nathan, soon to be ordained in just about a month's time. Um, but yeah, so I have grew up my, almost my whole life in Moscow. All great vocations come from Moscow, Idaho, but most of them stay at the monastery. So I'm one of the few to get out. But uh, I was a vandal. I, I went to... Uh, Russell Elementary School, the junior high high school, and I stayed local for college before I felt God calling me to uh, drop everything and follow him when I was a junior in college. And it's been a 10-year journey to get here, but a very necessary amount of time and a great blessing. And I've spent about five five of the last years here in Mount Angel, and I'm just getting ready to finally say goodbye in about two weeks. So I think in your reference there, Dick and Dale, about Moscow and staying in the monastery, I think you're referring to Abba Jeremy. Is that right? How'd you guess? Yes. So Abba Jeremy, can you talk a little bit about your upbringing and how you ended up here at the monastery? Yeah, I grew up in Moscow, Idaho as well. It's a wonderful place to grow up, a wonderful part of Idaho. Uh, I found my way to Mount Angel because uh, Boise Diocese uses Mount Angel Seminary and has for decades. And uh, so when I was, like, vaguely interested in the priesthood, I came here. The system was different in those days. One didn't really have to be sponsored by a diocese. You came directly to the seminary. But you were naturally associated with the diocese that you came from. I kind of had a hunch as a kid I wouldn't ever be a diocesan priest, but here I was in the seminary, and... uh, All the people from Idaho, uh, the Bishop Trinan included, expected me to be a priest in Idaho. And when I finally told them of my decision that that I would be a monk here at Mount Angel, they weren't especially happy about it at first. Uh, But I said, look, you guys, it's a completely different vocation to be a monk or to be a diocesan priest. And... uh, and, you know, they got that in the end, Bishop Trinan. I remember said, I said, look, Mount Angel uh, is Ben Boise Seminary forever. And I said, if I become a monk there and stay, I will always watch out for the Boise Seminarians. And I, I've tried to do that. Uh, I notice especially, I mean, there's hundreds of seminarians here, so I have to zero in on somebody. So I always zero in on the Idaho guys. 
Have you have you ever flunked an Idaho seminarian? No, they've deserved it, but not not me <laughs> because they're from Idaho. No, <laughs> yeah, that, that that's how I'm here. I've been I've been a monk here for 45 years. I don't know if we I don't suppose we ever said that on the podcast, but yeah, um, Joseph and Nathan and I are from uh, what's called North Idaho, which is. Uh, a different part of the state, kind of, in the sense of Idaho's Idaho, but um, the the people from the north uh, don't have a lot of experience with the south until they get into the priesthood, and then you wind up in every part of the state, which is which is something wonderful. But how was that transition of being a diocesan seminarian when you first came, and then transitioning to being? I presume you first went into the novitiate or maybe postulancy. What was what was that like? Yeah, I I uh, I joined the monastery after a college seminary, and so I would I I knew Mount Angel very well by that time, and uh, as I said, I never quite envisioned myself being a diocesan priest, and so. It wasn't, I was anxious to be in the monastery. But yeah, after college, uh, you're a postulant for, if you've been in the college seminary, we have the policy. Basically, when you're a postulant in a monastery, that's just so that you can kind of get to know what the monastery is and uh, also know, the, the, the monks can know you. But after many years here as a student, I knew what the monastery was, and they knew me. So the postulancy is very short, but the, and uh, you can begin the novitiate with profit if if you know what the place is and and how it works. So, uh, so uh, like any religious order, you're a novice for a year and a day, and then you make simple vows for a three year period, uh, which I did, and. Uh, then actually my simple vows were extended for two more years because that was a practice that Abbot Anselm instituted at the time that I was there. So I was five years in simple vows before I made my solemn vows uh, in 1979. Why did he make that change? He just thought we needed more formation. It wasn't anything about me in particular. <laughs> I never doubted that. Yeah. <laughs> And lastly, we have here with us John Mosier, soon soon to be Deacon John Mosier. John, welcome. Thank you very much. Now, you're not originally from Idaho. Where did you grow up? No, I'm not. In fact, I grew up back in the Midwest in the state of Ohio in a large Catholic family, five brothers and sisters, and uh, grew up in the Midwest, off to university in the Midwest. And then after university, I spent uh, a few years, six years in the military, in the Marine Corps, and then some additional schooling, and then embarked on a career in the biosciences, and particularly biomed engineering. And it was in the, the the exercise of that career that I moved to Portland. And uh, perhaps most importantly, or more importantly than the career, uh, prior to seminary, I was uh, married to an amazing woman. Her name was Jackie. And Jackie and I made our home here in the Portland area, worked for a company out on the west side of Portland. And Jackie was a Texas girl, and so we would... Uh, winter, if you will, on weekends, we'd commute over to Boise because Boise is sunny and Portland often is not. And if you take a Texas girl out of Texas, you need to find some sun. So we would do that. And we would visit the St. John's Cathedral community. And we fell in love with that community of very faithful, very committed people. And, And they received us and embraced us into that community as we would visit on the weekends. Um, we did that for a number of years, and, and sadly, I lost Jackie to cancer in 2008 and then embarked on my own next phase in life, discernment. And I had visited seminaries while I was in high school attempting to discern or, or actually discerning a, a vocation then, but decided at that time in my teens not to pursue it. So after Jackie's passing, I revisited that idea and I decided uh, through some great spiritual direction that I was receiving through the church that a vocation potential was there for me. So I, I wanted not to keep one foot in the world I was living in and one foot in the church. I wanted to commit to Christ and trust. And so I ended up leaving my position, resigned my position in the company I was working for, and moved to Boise 
and begin volunteering in various community activities within St. John's Cathedral Parish. And so different ministries, whether it was bringing the Eucharist to the homebound or food bank or crisis intervention, various things, mowing the lawn, I mean, whatever whatever was needed uh, as I continued that discernment uh, journey. And uh, then contacted Father Caleb Vogel uh, in the summer of 19, uh, 19, summer of 2014 and entered seminary that fall. That's how I came to know Boise and how I've fallen in love with the people, and they have been so receptive and generous to me. When you entered seminary, did you come here to Mount Angel right away? No. In fact, I had started a chaplaincy program, entered in a chaplaincy program in what is now the oldest Catholic college in the state of Oregon called Merhurst University. They have a three-year divinity program leading towards staff chaplaincy in a hospital. And it was in that uh, program that I had a spiritual director who was a priest, and there was a, a nun who's been on staff over at Merrillhurst for many, many, many decades. And both of them spent considerable time with me in helping me think through my vocation and and discerning that. And both of them independently, or at least as far as I know it was independent, um, both asked me and approached me about priesthood and said, are you sure that's not actually what you're thinking about? Because the essays you write, the presentations you give, seem to have an orientation towards that life of service uh, not distinct from chaplaincy, but in addition to staff chaplaincy. It seems like that's what your heart is yearning for, and perhaps you ought to pursue it. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing. And Deacon Joseph, you left Idaho for a while after having grown up in Cottonwood. Where did you go, and what did you do? Well, after high school, I always had an intention and a desire to be a priest most of my life, basically from a very, very young age. And so I attended a Catholic university in Florida at Ave Maria University, did my undergraduate studies there in philosophy and classical languages. And after that time, I, I then I joined the diocese and started studying here at Mount Angel in the theology program. So it's been a, a good transition. I spent a little bit of time away, uh, but now back in the Northwest again, where a lot of our formation happens here um, in our own backyard, you know, right in Oregon and Northwest, where we always serve the rest of our lives. And Deacon Dale, where did you go when you left Idaho? Originally, I spent the first three years um, of my formation on the East Coast in Connecticut in religious life. Um, I remember a priest saying earlier on that uh, when you want to make a flower strong, you have to uproot it and move it many times so it can survive in different elements and if you do that and if it's able to endure that then it's going to be very strong and perdure and uh, that's what I feel like God did with my heart you know my heart has always been in Idaho I never dreamed of leaving um, but when the vocation came and I was in college I left everything within a couple weeks of that event and so it was a fast stripping away from uh, of my heart from that place that I love so much. And then I went to Connecticut and I began to settle there. I began to love it there really enjoy the East coast. And then I was kind of uprooted, uprooted and moved to New York where I studied philosophy. I did a associates in the classical humanities in Connecticut. And then after being there for a year, I went to Rome and it was in Rome, um, exactly four years to the day, uh, on the feast of St. Michael, the archangel that, I really got the inspiration very strong that I was called to to come back to the diocese, um, which was a great surprise. But uh, after reviewing that with my spiritual director and uh, talking to the vocation director, that seemed like it was a green light on all sides. Maybe they just wanted to get rid of me over there. I don't know. But it, uh, it was very smooth. Um, but then I came to Mount Angel, and Mount Angel is like that... Uh, like that perfect greenhouse where I just felt like I was able to just feel like kind of going to Connecticut and New York and these different places were some harsh winds and winter environments, but coming here was like the springtime of my heart, you know, and uh, I've just been able to settle and to grow so much over these past five years here. And so I think this is going to be another uprooting and something interesting is when I go back to Idaho, um, it's no longer the same. Uh, 
Idaho is the place where I'm going to spend the rest of my life, but my heart is no longer in any geographical area. I feel like through all these uprootings, my heart is with God, you know, and it's it's in his hands and wherever he asks me to go, that's that's where I want to go. And that's why it's so hard for me to think about leaving Mount Angel now after being here for five years. It's just become a beautiful home to me. Um, I remember talking with Abbot Jeremy not too long ago, and he just, he said to me, you know, this this is going to be a hard transition, you know, because not as many people love seminary as much as you do. Um, and I really have, I've come to just love this place. But uh, just keeping that in mind, that when God uprooted me from Moscow, from the place I love, it wasn't so that he could move me to any particular place so much as to root me in himself and then move me wherever he wanted me to go. So it's with faith in that and in that voice and in that calling right now to become a diocesan priest in Idaho. That's where all my faith is, and that's what's leading me back there. And I think it's going to be a beautiful adventure in the next stage of the journey. Well, so maybe now turning towards ordination. So ordination coming around the corner here in about four weeks. How do you how do you guys feel? I feel pretty excited, pretty glad. Um, when it's something that, when the vocations, you know, something that uh, you feel God tugging you in that direction. Uh, you discern, you discern, and you discern. Uh, but something Pope Francis said, especially with uh, this coming a uh, coming up synod in the fall about young people and vocation and living that Christian life, and he says there after discerning there comes to be a time when you when you live, and I think that really that really hits me because we're getting ready to at least Nathan and myself are getting ready to live our vocation and John will be one year behind us, um, and that's it really hits you You're like our discernment's over. Um, and we're moving into a new stage in life, and this is a big thing. We're, we needed to guide lots of people. Uh, I think we can get stuck in discernment, even even uh, wives and husbands, mothers and fathers. you got to learn that there's a time when you reach that moment of living, living what God wants you to do, um, living in that identity. Yeah. As Nathan said earlier, living in that identity of Christ. God has drawn us to this place, this time to do that. So it's quite exciting. Yeah, I like that a lot, that idea of of living it. Everything's going to become really very real, I feel like, in the next couple of months. Everyone keeps asking, you know, what is ordination? Are you incredibly excited for ordination? And um, I have to say I, I was much more excited um, emotionally for the diaconate because the diaconate to me is the foundation insofar as that's where you make your perpetual promises, just like a a man would do for a woman. They they stand before the church in the church and they they promise themselves to one another forever. And that's what Joseph and I were able to do in Moscow, Idaho, and St. Mary's Church last year was we were able to make those promises and that commitment to to live our lives completely dedicated to to Christ through the bishop and for the people. Um, that was uh, I think that's the the foundation of the calling. And now it's been kind of a honeymoon stage this last year, being able to come back to Mount Angel. But just like, you know, a married couple, they they begin a family after that. You know, they start having children. I'll just get about 2,000 children in a day, you know. Um, and so it's really going to become a life of of outpouring. Mother Teresa always talked about with us, we give what we receive. And her missionary, when she received her call within the call, it was to go from like a contemplative closed-in community to going into the world and allowing her love for Christ to overflow into into the poor and in the places of the darkness. And that's what I feel like the diocesan priesthood is. It's Seminary has been a time of really just taking in so much grace, so many seeds being planted. Abbot Jeremy always talks about that. This is, this is a time for the seeds to be planted in our hearts. But this is, ordination is going out and and sharing and allowing everything we've received to now feed all the souls that are God's going to bring into our path. Um, and that's a great responsibility. So this isn't something I'm going into with rose-colored glasses. We're going to serve. Our life is of, of service. Um, and so it's it's exciting, but it's also with that very much in mind that this is a great responsibility. And I just pray to God and all the angels and saints that I can live up to that for the rest of my life. I think Deacon Joseph and Nathan touched on in a point that I'll likewise speak to, and it's this. Whenever we embark on something that's life-changing and 
by consequence for the rest of your life, you look to those who've gone before you for some degree of confidence. And uh, before entering into marriage, I was blessed by the example of not only my parents, but Jackie's parents as well. Had Their life was a life of testimony to the vocation of marriage. And so I was marrying, marrying a girl who I knew knew what marriage meant because her parents had modeled it and my parents had so beautifully modeled it. And likewise, in the military, I, I served under officers who, because the military tends to display past performance in, in, in terms of badges and ribbons, some of the men I served for, served under and served, served with, were, it was quite obvious they had lived out their vocation as an officer in the most profound ways. And then here in the seminary with the abbot we're blessed to have, and back in the home diocese with, with uh, Bishop Peter, we have... Again, the example of what does ordained life mean? Well, I have great examples to look to. And then in my personal case, upon my arrival here with now Father Mark Ulancott and now Father John Kuchera and the two brothers in the room with me now, three brothers in total with one in the class behind me, I have the privilege of living with great men who live this life truthfully and joyfully. And so my Anxiousness is only around my own inadequacies. It's not about the life itself. It's making sure that I've done everything I can. Attention to the curriculum here that very well prepares us. Attention to my own spiritual growth that would allow me to be Christ present to others. But there's no anxiousness about the life. There's only anxiousness about my ability to minister to those with the most evident sense of Christ's love that I can. You know, for my part, when I see the students I've had <clears throat> coming to ordination, it's a, it's a beautiful moment. Uh, that's when, in fact, you know, uh, I've actually, I don't know how many hundreds of students I've had over <laughs> the years. So you can't think about it very much. <laughs> but on the other hand, but, you know, not very much happens in any given year. And so uh, for the most part, I just see you guys in the first two years of theology in terms of having you in the classroom. Uh, but I uh, I really feel I, I bond strongly with my students and, and all three of you, uh, Nelson too, uh, but the three of you that are going to be ordained uh you all really got my teaching at a, at a good, deep level. And that's uh, so gratifying for me. And so when I think of you being ordained, it's, it's my own work coming to fruition. And how can I not feel, feel glad about that? It's a, it's a place where I feel fatherly. You know, I like, wow, I... I remember when these guys were boys. <laughs> That's sort of my sense. You know, boys theologically is what I mean, you know? You're uh, taking responsibility for us right now. Well, <laughs> Our future. Not, so. not completely. <laughs> not completely. No, so I just want you to know that. I'm really proud of all three of you. And, Thank you. Uh, it makes me very happy to think of you going back uh, to the state that I came from to be priests and deacon there. I think that's one of the biggest things that actually something we lack so much is solid fraternity in our world and great father figures, you know, and that's something I, I found so immensely at Mount Angel Seminary. Like I've never found anywhere else. We're watching Band of Brothers right now to prepare for going out into the world is a good analogy as deacons. But uh, the fraternity that you see of men going out to war together, totally united in one common vision and one battle together and giving their lives for that, that creates the strongest bond in the human heart between men um, and all united under the command of a general that they're following. And that's exactly what, you know, I, I feel like in this room and in, in this seminary, um, following the leadership of Abbot Jeremy and, and the fraternity that we have with one another, united in that vision and that desire to give everything for Christ. And I think that's something you don't find anywhere else in the world. Maybe this is a good time to turn into the theological underpinnings of what is about to happen here. Can you tell us, Father Abbott, what what happens at, at ordination? What happens at the diaconate ordination? What happens at the priestly ordination? What what are these men preparing for? 
Well, if we focus just on the ritual itself, I mean, and I think I will focus there because, I mean, for years from every angle you've been studying the theological realities that surround that and and all of the all of the practical things you'll need to face the consequences of your ministry but uh ordination should be a really important reminder to you that uh being a good deacon being a good priest is ultimately not uh not a bunch of stuff that you learned in books you need all the stuff that you learned you need all the theology that you learned, and you'll find that you need even a whole lot more than that. But anyway, you get as much as you can from studying and thinking and exposing yourself to the tradition. But ordination will remind you that this is God's work in you through the Holy Spirit. Uh, ordination is a sacrament, uh, which means <clears throat> that God does it. God makes you a deacon. God makes you a priest. Uh, the, through the through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and so this this again is is the fruit of of Jesus's own Paschal mystery. Uh, he is crucified, risen. He is he is established at the Father's right hand, and and forever is pouring out through his intercession from the Father, the Holy Spirit on the church, and and and. So that risen and ascended Lord through whom the Spirit comes to us lands on your head in the ritual action. That's what the laying on of hands means. You know, that the, the, the bishop who became a bishop himself by the laying on of hands, that laying on of hands which comes to us from Christ through the apostles, through the bishop, is going to land on your head and make you a deacon, and make you a priest. And, uh, you know, that's that's just a very vivid image of the ritual action. And I would want you to go into that ceremony, in some sense, you know, passively receiving that. I mean, passively, not in the sense of, you know, you're not. But, but pass in the sense of, what can you do to make yourself a priest? Nothing. You know, you've prepared yourself as an instrument, but at this point, you just need the action of the church, which is God's own action, uh, to conform you to Christ. And then to, you will feel that, and you will feel that the rest of your lives, because through you as a deacon, through you as a priest, uh, what will come out of you is this gift of the Spirit, that is uh, that comes from the ordained uh, to lead the community in all the ways. I'm not going to go over it again. Uh, you know what a deacon do- is and does. You know what a priest is and does. Uh, but don't you won't you won't forget it. But this is the beauty of, of the action. This happens because Christ does it and is active in your ordination liturgy. It's an outpouring of grace that is. Well, it's immeasurable, you know. It's not just kind of some grace from God, you know. It's 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 a lavishing of the Holy Spirit upon you, uh, so that you can lavish the Spirit on God's people through the celebration of the sacraments and and through your ministry. How do we stay in that? You know, I think the temptation that we hear about a lot is. You go out and there's just so many needs, especially in a missionary diocese like Idaho. How can we stay in that gift and reception, you know, uh, that active passivity? Well, you know, it's I give you the standard answer because it's the only answer. You need to live a, a, a very constant life of prayer. Uh, and I, personal prayer. But a lot of what you do as a priest is leading God's people in prayer. But you need to in, inhabit and occupy and own that space so that all the time that you're praying with God's people and for God's people, that's doing you good, a lot of good yourself, because 
as a priest, like we take the juggler vein example of presiding at Mass. You, you do this every day, and some Sundays you probably do it several times a day. Well, when you are focused on that, and I would that would be my biggest advice to you, is when you're celebrating Eucharist especially, not, you need to be so focused so that you're you're doing that well for the sake of the people. But that is what's going to do you good. That's when you will, you can, unless it becomes routine for you and you mustn't let it, but that's when you uh, will feel this action of the Holy Spirit that I'm talking about. You will feel Christ uh, occupying you, inhabiting you, functioning through you. You will feel his spirit coming through you. And that will, I hope that will shock you and surprise you and humble you and uh, shake you up and uh, keep you focused. It's a, it's, a, it's a tremendous privilege. And, you, you know, you, you don't do any of that on your, by yourself. So just to, to be his poor instrument and, and to trust it, trust him to work in big ways through you. You know, what you will accomplish as as deacon and priests uh, is much more than the sum of your natural parts. I mean, you know, none of us has a whole lot to offer uh, just by himself. Uh, got something for a while, but, you know, for the rest of your life, <laughs> helping people die, fall in love, live their lives, encounter Christ week after week in the Eucharist. Who knows how to do that, you know? And that that's not a bag of tricks. That's the Holy Spirit's action in, in the priest, you know? That's no, really interesting. Joseph and I, we both had to uh, practice Mass today, and thankfully we got to see you actually doing it for us this morning. But it came up that your Masses are always different. They're prayer... They're, it, it really looks like you're praying to the Father. What's going through your mind that keeps you in that um, in that dialogue when there's so much going on? How are you able to to make the Eucharistic prayer your own prayer? Well, I I don't know for sure. I just do it. But uh, I guess you know if I were going to give you advice, um, I would I would. Uh, I mean, I think the best advice I can give you as priests uh, is the most important thing you do is, is preside at Mass. And, of course, the the intensity of the Eucharistic prayer is, is just, this is the Church at, at her best. I mean, this is it. And so you really need to be focused in that prayer. Uh, and that takes a lot of preparation, and, and it it takes focus, and it takes your belief. And I find it useful to be aware uh, that the prayer, the Eucharistic prayer, is directed toward God the Father. Uh, the whole assembly is following it uh, and, and, and is offering it through the priest's voice. Well, you need to be very aware that that's happening. And I guess would say, in a certain sense, not fall into the trap of thinking that you are doing it uh, in front of the people, though you are. But the whole people is doing it in front of God. That's, that's the movement. And so in, in some sense, you don't have to be uh, concerned to, uh, as it were, make contact with the people. You've got to understand me rightly here, because you, you establish contact with them. I'm just at the Eucharistic prayer now. You establish beautiful contact with them in the preface dialogue. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. Re Next next sentence, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Then let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and just. So you are in deep contact with the people, and the people are in deep contact with your priest. Well, then go, all of you, to the Father. 
It is truly right and just, Father, that we always... And from that moment on, you don't need to be focusing on the people or looking at them or anything. You need to be offering the prayer and you need to trust that your people have been prepared by you as priests to know what they're doing there. And so your people are following you. You have taught them that they got to follow your prayers, your gestures. They got to put their faith out there, just like you're putting yours out. And you are lifting through the power of the Holy Spirit working in you as a priest. You're lifting this whole assembly up in the prayer. And I'm, I'm using this image of lifting them up because one of the names for this prayer is anaphora, to carry it up on high, to carry what up on high? The people offering themselves through Christ, transforming themselves into Christ's own offering. All of that is being lifted up, carried up by Christ through his priest. So you just, you've got to inhabit that with your theological understanding, with your faith, with the way you've prepared your people. And that's, that's your whole priestly ministry in a sense. In, in, you know, we could say, you know, not literally because you're out helping people, but your whole priestly ministry is, is to get everybody to understand how to be present at the Eucharist and to be part of this offering. Uh, everything the church does is so that the whole world can be what is carried up on high. And um, so when you're in that space of that prayer, you don't need to be anywhere else but just yourself following the prayer and its every word. And I, I want to... I want to tell you guys, like, very practically, this can be done. Of course, you have to believe it. You have to understand it as deeply as possible. You will grow in your understanding of it. But just go slowly, for heaven's sakes. I do not understand why so many priests just read it as if nothing were happening. It's not going to... I mean, something happens no matter how poorly you perform it. But, I mean... How can you do stuff like this and just read along in a monotone quickly? That This makes no sense to me. So, I don't know. I I don't go very fast when I say the Eucharistic prayer. I'm very careful with the gestures. Stuff like that. I mean, like one of the things I just uh, love is how uh, when you get to the, uh, the narrative of, of the... Of, of the Lord's words and gestures the uh, over the bread and the wine, you have something like, uh, for on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. I love that moment. I, and, and I just, I, I make my gesture exactly time he took bread. And I just give it, I just give it two seconds, maybe not even that much. But I don't go, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, uh, said the blessing, giving thanks, and said, this is what you you, 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 no, this, this is huge. You want to go very slowly and time your gestures. For on the night he was betrayed, he himself took bread, giving you thanks. He said the blessing broke the bread and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and eat of it, for this is my body, which will be given up for you. What's the hurry? This is the best thing you can do as a priest. if you do that well, your people will follow you. They'll get it, you know. And 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 then the same with the chalice. I love that too. In a similar way, when supper was ended, he took the chalice. Just, you know, you're saying it and you're doing it. And people see that. That's beautiful. He took the chalice. Or 
I love it in the first Eucharistic prayer, uh, the line there, he took this precious chalice. And, you know, that's that's one of the great moments of, of Eucharistic theology, that it's this chalice. And, you know, okay, get it. We all know that it can't literally be that chalice that's on the altar that Jesus had at the Last Supper. On the other hand, it is. <laughs> because the whole reality is there. So I wish all of the four of the Eucharistic prayers had taken that line from the Roman canon. I just think that's so great. And I remember once uh, I was given a talk on the Eucharist to some people, and somebody objected, but they were on too literal a level. She said, now, how could you possibly know that that was a precious chalice? I think Jesus just used a regular cup. I don't know, and you don't know what kind of cup Jesus used, and we'll never know. But the reason the church talks this way is because we know what's in it, and what's in it is his blood, and that makes it precious. And so, but anyway, I, what, the thing that's great about Eucharistic Prayer 1, uh, is, is that in that moment is without any apology, the prayer just says, this is the chalice that Jesus used, and here it is, it's our chalice, and this is the, and it would be offered, this is our offering, and, and more marvelous still, this precious chalice will be placed in your hands, by me, the priest, to give you communion. What do you want? I mean, this is this is this is your life as a priest, and it's magnificent theology. So it's all there already for you. It's the don't make up stuff, don't change the rubrics, you know. Just but do this with understanding, and do it do it more slowly. I I would just say that you you know. Don't rush this part of the Mass. I would offer this, Father Abbott, as having had the privilege of studying under you in two courses, your quote a moment ago, the, re- the reason the Church talks this way, as a master theologian, you, you give us a language that's very elevated and rich, but at the same time you're able to take that language and put it through the layman's filter and make it so beautiful. And... You don't walk around speaking of the synergistic perichoresis within the epiclesis, although that has incredible meaning. What you talk about is, as you just said, this chalice. Say the words. This is how the church talks. This is how the church speaks. And as a lifelong Catholic, I didn't understand my faith until I came here and had it unpacked and had it revealed and opened up to me. And it's through... What Happens at Mass, a book you've authored. It's through the class on homiletics that you provide us with. It's through your example on the altar this morning, as Deacon Nathan mentioned, that we really begin to understand our faith. And the joy of ministry toward looking toward the future is just being able to take pieces of that and explain it in a way that you demonstrate day to day here in the seminary and in the monastery. It's a it's a joy to have that example in front of us every day. Yeah, thank you. It's 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 great to have you to pass it on to. I mean, that's the way it, it happens. All anything and all that I know was passed on to me. Hmm. I've received it all. I could use Paul's words. I myself have passed on to you what I myself received. <laughs> what else, you guys? So a lot of our going into the ministry, um, going into this priesthood, is passing this knowledge on. And you know, I think that might be a bit of the point of the, the podcast, you know, theology of the Eucharistic table. And we've drawn it right to that Eucharistic table. as a kind of like maybe your top ten or not 10, but your top picks for how do we, um, yes, we're using these prayers, we're saying the prayers, we're embracing that, that, that I am Christ, and this is my body, you know, we're representing Christ, the whole church, that, that movement, as a theologian once told me, and he's sitting there praying mass, and he, it hit him all of a sudden, he says, oh, I, I'm using the I pronoun, 
wow, that's, that's big. Um, so how, how do we communicate this? How do we bring that theology of the Eucharistic table into our parish? You know, can we just sign them up for the podcast or what more can we do? Look, you'll have all kinds of people in your parish at all kinds of levels. And yet we can all come together and pray together and do. You know, so you need to you need to keep your eyes peeled like a good shepherd, uh, looking at the different kinds of people you have and knowing that some of them would love to go more deeply and are ready just for a little guidance. And so you can guide them to the instruments that you yourself know. Others are not going to be inclined to study or read or listen to podcasts. God bless them. You know, they're going to just probably pray. <laughs> that, that's, that's just good, too. You, you, you will find many uh, holy people of prayer in your parishes, uh, probably more than you know even yet. It's, you get to know them closer uh, as in, in the ministry. But, you know, so to encourage their, their prayer, uh, it, it, you, you will always have some people that are very deeply in prayer and don't, maybe don't even know it. So you could just confirm that in them, give them a little language here and there. But I think the thing that we all have in common, whether we even understand it or not, are the texts, from, especially from the ordinary of the Mass, that are repeated again and again. Uh, it's in people's ear. Uh, you can pause on any one of them and open it up and and just say, do you realize what that means? Have you ever thought about that? And just just do it that way. And you'll never run out of stuff. You'll never run out of anything. Do you think we could take one of these texts, ordinary texts, and make that into a homily? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, you know, I think I encouraged that in my homiletics <laughs> class, didn't I? That's right. And, and I mean, the unused prefaces that you could preach on. Uh, just wonderful prefaces, you know. So, uh, you know, the preface that you're going to use in the Mass that day, you know, be instructive, say, hey, you know, we always have a preface, you know that, but let's listen today because, and then just explain a little bit about how a preface works. Say, have you noticed that it's always structured the same way, but the middle part always changes. Mm -hmm. Well, today's middle part, I'm going to use this, but I'm speaking for all of us. So, and then cite it. And then when you're praying it, do it, you know, so that they, they feel they've already heard, you know, just in your preaching, the cadence of your voice when you're preaching that line from the preface that would be the very same cadence that you want to use when you're when you're saying those words only 10 minutes later they'll they'll make those connections you know take the acclamations lord have mercy what's that's huge call the lord lord no one can say jesus is lord except in the holy spirit so the holy spirit's all over that uh the Gloria, Lamb of God, what's that mean? We say it all the time. Very strange if you don't know what it means. All the, <laughs> all the Catholics are in there saying Lamb of God over and over again. What, why? <laughs> explain it. People love that when you explain things. They really do. And it's usually too, you have an embarrassment of riches. You have so much that you can, you can just pick up. So that, that was for the parishioners. What about us theologians? Ongoing formation, growing deeper in that. Yeah. Well, you can go in all kinds of directions. Um, I, I would say, you know, you can, you can read more and study more. Uh, I think that that's a, important. Uh, there are resources that can, can take you through the prayers I myself, I don't know if you would get much out of this. I, you might. I, I think you. I like to read about the history of the prayers. Where did the pref, Where did this preface come from? Or the presidential prayers? You know, there are sources that tell you where the opening prayer of the third Sunday of Lent comes from. Those are all very ancient prayers. Uh, just uh, where the prayer over the gifts comes from. Where the prayer after communion comes from. This preface comes from. Now, those are scholarly books, but. I don't know. I get off on that. I, I just find that so rich. 
uh, when I see, oh my goodness, this prayer has been used since the fifth century. How interesting that I still can like it, you know, and find so much in it. That's that's a one thing I like to do. You know Latin very well. Uh, I think it's good to look at the, the texts in Latin, even if you're going, to, you're going to be praying them for your people in English. Um, but uh, there's, there's, you know, the Latin will, will deepen your sense of, of how much is happening in a text theologically. Uh, and with the new translation we have of the Missal, uh, it's, it's, it's much uh, closer to the Latin, so you can you can you can kind of trust the the theological sense of that. You guys can ask me another question. I want to look for my favorite preface uh, from the Easter season, which I can't find where it is in this part of the missal. But anyway, what what's another question? I'll find it while while I'm talking. Sometimes a beautiful question <clears throat> asked around family tables. Thanksgiving is a good setting for that. Is was a maybe a tradition we had in our house, but it was a question. We'd go around the table. My five siblings, parents, parents would ask us, "What was the, what's the biggest surprise you've had in, let's say, the last six months, or biggest surprise you've had in the last year, whatever frame of reference makes sense?" And that surprise can be in the context of a spiritual enrichment you found, or it could be in Christ present through a relationship that's that's expressed itself, or a community development, something like that, Father Abbott, is where you were surprised at that moment. As a man who's daily in prayer and very close relationship with our Lord, you're still surprised by his presence. I, I'm i surprised often, but I, I'm wondering, That's it. for some reason it's a difficult question because what surprises me is I'll get fresh understanding of something that I thought I already understood kind of deeply. <laughs> and I, and then it just gets me completely again. And I, so I just go, that's so amazing. And there are no new words for it, but there's been a new understanding, mm. you know, and, uh, I, th- I think of that very often when I'm saying parts of the Eucharistic prayer. I have no new words for my understanding, but I know I've somehow dropped a level deeper into something here. And so I struggle for how to express that. But I would just say I remain amazed at what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. I just, I can't get over it. And uh, I think maybe, I used to do this more when I, I don't know, I've done it in class with you guys, I've been teaching so long, but um, I, uh, Father Martin Pollard, who was an old monk here, he used to hit his head like this and go, I'm going to go crazy. You know, you guys are driving me crazy. <laughs> and uh, and I decided, started adopting this gesture of hitting my head and saying, I'm going to go crazy if people don't believe in Jesus. You know, <laughs> and, and, and that's, I, that's the way I feel when I see something beautiful more again about our faith and the, the shape of our redemption. This is... Uh, you probably heard me, the variation that I like to use on Anselm's ontological proof of God to, to apply that directly to salvation. This is salvation, the shape of which, greater, greater than which none can be conceived. The shape of our salvation. You can't, you can't, God can't have done more. And I'm going to go crazy <laughs> if people don't understand that, you know? I, I just want people to get that. I honestly, that's what I was thinking as you were talking. That's the greatest gift that you've given, though. I feel like you're when you come to Mount Angel, you have the potential to be born again, born into wonder. Um, when you look into especially the Old Testament, what comes up over and over again is it talks about God's wonderful works, admirable. Um, and John Paul II said, Saint John Paul II said, one of the most beautiful aspects of the human person and what needs to be. Re- 
discovered in our time is the human's ability to wonder at creation, to wonder at God, to wonder at himself. And on a personal note, um, that's what Mount Angel brought me back into. He took me into the wonder of salvation history, the wonder of the world that we live in and the wonder of the work that God has done in our own lives. So I think that's exactly what you've given us just by the way you live the faith. And that's one of the greatest gifts we could receive. Mm, thank you. Just a shout out to Terrence Malick, a great film called To the Wonder about um, divine love and human love. So you ought to have a movie reference in, in your talks, but definitely see that yes, film. Yes, a lot of our podcast listeners won't stay with us unless there's a movie reference. Or... <laughs> and Terrence Malick, if you're listening to this podcast, we appreciate you. <laughs> I can read you something from my book, Monk's Alphabet. I think you guys know this book, but I mean, for the podcast world, Monk's Alphabet is a a book I wrote that has in it uh, stray thoughts that I didn't want to lose track of. So I used to have a good thought that wouldn't fit anywhere, so I wrote them down. And then I polished them into short little provisional essays and gave them each a title and arrange them in alphabetical order, inviting the reader to read them in any order, rather like you read a dictionary. You can read a dictionary from start to finish, but most people don't do it that way. So Monk's Alphabet's the same way. But I wrote that one of the entries is is one called Priest. And I, I think it might be worth, I think it can fit in here. I think I read this to you once, Nathan, when you asked me a similar question, but... Uh, I'm just going to read this. Is that okay? I mean, it doesn't take long, but... Priest. One evening, Nicholas, age nine, interrupted a dinner conversation that was going in quite another direction and announced, I have a question. Then he turned to me and said, What's it like as a priest to say the words of Jesus at Mass, This is my body. I knew that he needed as clear and complete an answer as possible and that he expected it to be brief. So I told him that you could feel in that moment Christ completely taking possession of you and that you experience his total love for the people, his desire to give every bit of himself for their well-being. You feel it especially for the people who are there in the church, but you know also that this love is for the whole world, for everybody and for everything in the world. In another direction, you also feel in yourself Christ's love for his Father, burning like a roaring furnace. You understand that the reason he is offering his body and blood is because in this way he wants to honor his father. He knows that the father wants him to offer himself for the world in this way. And he gladly does it so full of love is he. I could see that Nicholas was made happy by this answer. The smile that spread quietly across his face when I had finished betrayed a wonderful understanding, a kind of knowing satisfaction, almost a, yes, I thought so. He had told me the week before, with tears in his eyes, that he wants to be a priest when he grows up. So, John, that... That's a surprise. <laughs> you know, that's an example of a surprise. Perfect, perfect. But one is surprised very much uh, celebrating the Mass inside the Eucharistic prayer, not just at the consecration, the whole, the whole Eucharistic prayer is just wonderful. But often at the consecration, you, you do feel yourself taken over in, in a beautiful way by Christ. And it's wonderful. I think we have a few more minutes here, so we better start wrapping it up. Brothers, do you have any lingering questions for the Abbot? We've gone over many, many questions. 
already but if there's anything else that you've had on your mind on your heart whether over the last hour or the last the last five years that you've wanted to ask to have it but hadn't had the opportunity to ask do you think god might be calling you to come back and serve the people of idaho in a parish at this point pretty sure that's not what he's asking right now okay. <laughs> wouldn't mind it it'd be easier than what i'm doing right now <laughs> I do think that's a beautiful layer of the mystery, isn't it, Father Abbott, that you grew up in Idaho, you came to Mount Angel to study for the Diocese of Boise, then you entered the monastery, and in a sense, the people of Boise and the bishop were upset that you had left and weren't going to be a priest for Idaho, but then you've spent your whole life praying for the Diocese of Boise and forming priests and then sending sending them back to Idaho and hear three three more examples of that yeah you know I loved Bishop Trinan he's a wonderful man and I remember he had a penetrating gaze too you know he'd look you right in the eye and he could sort of unsettle you with his glance that's not all he did but he could do that you know among other things Uh, and I remember looking him in the eye when I joined the monastery and, and telling him what I told you at the beginning you know I did that. I would always watch out for the Idaho seminarians, you know. And how can I not? That's my home. And uh, I don't have family there anymore, but for, for many decades, my family was still there, you know. And, and so I knew. Uh, right down the street from me. Yeah, right. Uh, Nathan <laughs> just lived down the street from my brother. And uh, my brother was buried from St. Mary's Church. And um, the pastor was my former student, you know, and all the people uh, up and down the state have, have been students of mine, and, and I keep track of that. That's a, that's a big joy for me. You always love the place you come from, you know, how can mm-hmm. you not? And you've given us lots of advice. Do you have any last sending off advice that you'd like to give these men? Be generous in giving it all away. You got a lot here, and everything you got here is to be given away. And everything you get in your own prayer life, you know, when the Lord comes close to you in prayer, that's for you, but it's also for others. So anything you're ever given, give it away to your people and do it bravely and generously. Just keep giving. John, can you give us the nuts and bolts? When is the ordination? Where is it? Can anyone go? Do you have a? Do you need a special invitation from the bishop or from yourself? How does well, that there's a few questions I don't have the answer to on that, Nelson. But logistically, June seventh of this coming June seventh, twenty eighteen, at eleven a.m. St. John's Cathedral, downtown Boise, will be the celebration, and the bishop Peters intention and it's so beautiful he wants to ordain uh, two priests and a deacon together that's not often an opportunity a bishop has and he certainly does this year so um, it's my privilege to be consecrated in the same mass as deacon nathan and deacon joseph but that's at 11 a.m on june 7th in terms of um, admission and uh, invitation that i don't have details on but i know that our all are welcome all are welcome all are certainly all welcome, welcome but the, to this place. Yeah, on the, just fill the cathedral up. That's, that's, that's a big cathedral. We can fill her up. We certainly will be joined with everyone in prayer that day. Whether or not you're able to physically be present, please do join us in prayer that day. It's a, it's a great day for the diocese and a privileged day for the three of us. John, then you, as a deacon, you're probably going to start preaching pretty soon. Do you know where your first preaching mass will be? Well, I'm a, I don't know that in specific, but I am assigned to study for this summer under Father Javier in St. Anthony's in eastern Idaho, and that'll be a, a tremendous opportunity to learn from him and minister, get to know the people of that surrounding area. So I imagine if not the the next uh, weekend, it would be very soon after that in the St. Anthony area. And what will every homily be about? Paschal sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs>
Don't forget the template, yes. But, well, right. I would offer, yeah. now that you invite that question, Father Abbott, it would be, first of all, I'm going to look to the Old Testament text and bring it relevant to uh, the gospel we've just heard. I'm going to explore the gospel and how it reveals to us the Paschal mystery. And I certainly won't forget mission, because as we experience Christ in the Eucharist, we all have an obligation to take that gift that you just described being generous with and take that out to the people we encounter. So follow that template. It's, it works. As you said, this is how the church talks, and it uh, it works. Did he pass the pop quiz, Father Abbott? He did. He did. <laughs> Deacon Joseph, when will, when and where will your first Mass be? So my first Mass will be back up in, uh, in Cottonwood on the Great Camas, Camas Prairie for the Solemnity of the Sacred Heart, 630 in St. Mary's Church in Cottonwood. Are all welcome also? Yes, yeah, there's a lot of Catholics in Cottonwood, so you might have to fight for a chair. Deacon Nathan? I, on the other hand, could use like any charity um, in coming to my Mass. I don't know how many we're going to get there. Uh, it's actually going to be in Lewiston, Idaho. Uh, it's not going to be in Moscow. We had such a great blessing to have our diacon ordination there, and I uh, thought it would be a, a great blessing and a great sign of the priesthood being for mission um, to have my first Mass 30 miles south in Lewiston in the very place I'll be serving for the first couple of years as a priest. So if you want to come, you have to travel a little bit, especially from your, from Moscow, but it'll be worth it. Same time, 6.30 uh, or 6 p.m., one of the two, um, in Lewiston on Friday, Sacred Heart. And my first Mass will be on June 14th, 2045. Everyone is welcome. <laughs> we'll be there. <laughs> Well, Father Abbott, would you close us off with a, a prayer and a blessing for us and for all of our listeners? Okay. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this bonus episode. We'll be back next week with our regular series. As always, you can find us online, theology at mountangel.com. That's theologyatmtangel.com. Or shoot us an email, theology at mtangel.edu. Thank you so much, and God bless you.